Today's Europe chat takes place in a different format. To look at the sensitive issue of migration, I've invited Giles Mary. Giles is a former journalist, the founder of Friends of Europe, a prolific author, and a very astute observer of everything European. Giles, welcome, and let's get straight to the point. All right. My first question is about the subtitle, actually. When you read the subtitle, you know immediately what the book is about. Now, at a time when many Europeans fear an increase of migration, you say, more migrants, please. How can you explain that? Well, it's really common sense. I'm, I'm not a crusader, although Politico, writing about this book, called me a, a veteran contrarian. <laughs> um, if that means raising uncomfortable issues, I'm happy with that. And I do think the issue is uncomfortable because political Europe is in denial about what we all know. Europe is aging and shrinking. What people don't know is how fast. Every year in Europe, in the EU, we're losing between one and a half and two million workers and therefore taxpayers. And we badly need new blood. It's about 10 years, 15 years ago, there was a wise men's uh, report by Felipe Gonzalez, former Spanish prime minister. Yes, I remember that one. Yeah. Felipe said, what we need by mid-century is 100 million migrants. Now, some people dispute some of the zeros, but the message is clear, and I hope the message of my book is clear. We badly need more manpower. Thank you. Before I take you up on this one, uh, maybe a word about the actual title, which is People Power, which uh, is a bit strange. Uh, I take it that you refer to the people who want to come to Europe. Uh, does that mean that they have all the power they want to? They can come whenever they like. Is that the message, which would be a bit provocative, if I, if I may say so? I'm sorry to say the reason is rather banal. It's political correctness. The, the, the publishers didn't want me to say manpower because, because it seemed to be uh, rule out women power. So we ended up with people power. But the message is, I think, we need, as I've said, more manpower. We just don't have enough people. And immigration, which at the time of the so-called migrant refugee crisis, 2015, 2016, was somewhere between 1.8 million and 2 million people, basically from Syria and Iran. That has now slowed to a trickle. And that's a real problem. We don't have enough newcomers. And that is why I think you write, uh, if I, I can quote you, you say that whether driven by hunger or ambition, migrants will keep on coming, whatever the barriers in the way. Is that what, but does that really mean that we cannot control our borders? I don't think we can. I mean, look at the map. Uh, the, the Mediterranean is not a very big sea. It's not like... America protected by the Atlantic and the Pacific. Um, and I think the, uh, 
the problems of Africa, the instability there and in the Middle East, is going to prompt big inflows of people. And by hook or by crook, they're going to get across the Mediterranean. Now, I know that the, the mantra in Brussels is, ah, we're spending a lot more money. We've revitalized Frontex, the, the common border force. Um, we're spending five times more on it in the current budget than previously. I think a lot of that is pie in the sky. And I also compare the money that we're spending on protecting our borders with the money that we're spending on improving conditions in Africa. We've increased the African aid budget by 2 billion euros. It went from 26 billion to 28 in the current budget. Can I probe you a bit more on this one? Because yeah. uh, it is now. I, I personally would have thought that investing more into the protection of our external borders in the light of what had happened in 2015 was actually common sense. And why do I say this? And that's where I want to, to have your answer on. Don't you think that if we do not give the impression, and not only the impression, but we actually better protect our border, that we will not have the climate to actually start talking in a dispassionate way as you uh, try to, to, to push the, uh, about migration. That's my fear. Don't you think that simply saying we cannot control our borders will send such a message of fear to many Europeans that they will not accept to talk about migration? Isn't that the, the case? Well, I mean, I think there are a number of answers to this one. The, and really, let's look at the last five years or so. Um, Quite a lot of migrants from uh, Africa have not arrived there in Libya or along the, the southern shores of the Mediterranean, and they're real embarrassment. They are uh, they are a reproach to Europe's humanity. They are a political problem in the countries where they're basically being incarcerated and put into camps. Europe has talked about what amounts to detention camps along the southern Mediterranean shore. I think all of those things are not policies we can be proud of. And then we must turn to the question of legal migration, because that's, that's the message, isn't it? If you make migration legal, then you can handle it. But legal migration has dried up. Um, at one point, we were allowing in about roughly half a million legal migrants a year. Uh, not nearly enough to confront the labor shortages, but that's now been halved. The last figures I saw were 280,000. And if you look at work permits, it's much, much smaller. It's about a tenth of but that. But you talk about the fortress Europe in that context. But Frankly, if I compare the numbers, for instance, of asylum seekers or refugees we take in each year to the Americans, the Americans have gone down to 18,000 a year. The Canadians do not much better, and the Australians cut out everything. So I've, isn't it a bit unfair? Because after all, the Union, the Europeans, are the ones who take by far most refugees. But let's be clear, Jim, you're talking about 
comparing a bad policy with a worse policy. Um, the American um, slowdown on immigration is now starting to worry the American economic planners. They're saying, despite the high fertility rate amongst the Latino community, there are not going to be enough workers. And I used to hold out America as being the, the shining example of how to handle migration, because the Americans have the same fertility problem as us. But nevertheless, their birth rate takes them from 320 million people now to 400 million by mid-century. Mid Look at our figures. They're almost the opposite. Yes. Yes. Uh, we lose something like 35 million people in the European Union in the next 25 years. That's a big hole in the state finances of the member states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's I think, is a fair point. But let me come to another point, which is related, of course. Uh, you say at some stage that there is too rigid a distinction between uh, economic migrants and asylum seekers. And we should somewhat blur this distinction. There, I have a question to you, or two questions. The first one is, if that means that we should treat everybody like an economic migrant, aren't you afraid that thus we will kill the Geneva Convention on Asylum? The reverse argument also holds true. If we treat everybody like a potential asylum seeker, we will vastly increase the people who, between inverted commas, have a right to come to Europe. Yeah. Isn't that a bit of a problem? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a terribly tricky issue. But at the moment, the problem is rigidity. Um, different member states have a different rate of admission. If you, if you claim asylum in Germany or Austria, you've got a very good chance of being accepted. If you try it in a lot of the southern member states, your chances are virtually zero. Uh, Belgium is somewhere in between. But Belgium is a very good example. What happens is people apply for asylum because they think they have a better chance. It also gives them breathing space because they're given a sort of orange card and told, you know, don't ring us, we'll ring you. Then they're told no. They don't actually go home. They become sans papier. They disappear into the black economy. So they do sort of work, they undercut wages, and they pay no taxes. Happy with that? I don't think so. So what I think we really need to do is to have a more intelligent distinction between genuine political asylum seekers and economic migrants. But personally, I'm not against economic migrants. Most economic migrants are young males. The fact that there aren't enough young females is another problem altogether that we should be looking at very seriously. But roughly 60% of young male economic migrants find work within five years. We'll come back to that in a second, because you, you've written something about this. But the question uh, of, uh, I mean, you, you, you accept that there should be some difference between asylum seekers and uh, economic migrants, uh, which I think there has to be. 
Of course, your argument is, if I understand it correctly, that uh, a lot of the economic migration, you should avoid having illegal migration by offering more legal migration for those people. Whereas the people who come as refugees, it's difficult for them to come legally. I mean, they just come because they flee war or something, and they cross any border they can. Is that correct? It's true. Although, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people commenting that the difference between fleeing poverty and hunger and misery and fleeing uh, civil conflict or whatever is rather a fine distinction if you're fleeing. It is from the perspective of the person concerned. It's not from our perspective because the, the reservoir of potential people coming for economic reasons is, of course, vastly bigger. I personally would submit that we are prisoners of our own past, that the asylum-seeking mechanism dates back to 1951 and the, the first of the Geneva Conventions. It was a Cold War weapon. Come to us, seek political um, uh, refugee status, um, and we will save you from a wicked communism. But we're still using that original device for totally different reasons. So I think the problem is that some of these UN devices become tablets of stone. And I, all I think I'm saying is, let's open this up, let's have a think, and let's see if we can't devise a way of policing the difference in a more intelligent way. And I think that, that leads us into the whole question of integration. Yes, let me come to this, because yeah. I, I wanted to come back to your prime, primary thesis, which yeah. is that, economically speaking, we need uh, migration, That's because... Right. They provide growth, basically, and income. Now, uh, that is you, and you have very convincing figures about that. There yeah. is, of course, an if, and it's a big if. It is if those people are actually integrated. You used the term, and if they actually manage to join the labour market. Now, there uh, you uh, say at some stage, uh, because of this, you say immigrants are an investment, not an unrecoverable cost. But a bit later you also recognize that immigrants are more likely to be unemployed and rely on social security assistance than native workers. Only half of the migrants find work within the first 10 years of their arrival, page 83. So there is a problem, though. I mean, it's not auto the, let's put it this way. The economic benefit is not automatic. It's very true, but it's not entirely the migrants' fault that they can't find work. For instance, in, in most uh, EU countries, it's very difficult to open a bank account. Well, it's very difficult to be in society without a bank account. You can't, you can't rent an apartment, you can't get a job, so on and so forth. So I think that we mustn't throw up our hands and say migrants are very, very difficult to employ because we're making them difficult to employ. This is not to underrate the problem of people who do not necessarily, generally, do not speak the language of the host country. They may speak a bit of pidgin English, and that's about it, uh, or pidgin French. Um, but we need to, I think, spend 
much more money. We need to invest much more money in housing them, in educating them, training them, getting them into work, and turning them into, I keep on emphasizing the point, tax-paying citizens. So in other words, a massive short-term investment for longer-term benefits. Yes. I mean, Germany is a very interesting example. As, as we all know, the Germans bore the brunt of the 2015-2016 crisis. The total cost is reckoned for the first five years at somewhere around 100 billion euros, roughly 20 billion a year. The Germans at the time said, we're going to be making money out of this. And the time has now come. They're starting to show uh, a net profit on those refugees from the Syrian crisis who actually were in work. Uh, it's, it's, it's early beginnings, yes. but we, we can see the trend. And I think this is something we need to be studying much more and not seeing as a German exception, but as a pilot for Europe as a whole. Interesting. Um, now, we've talked about the economic argument, and I think you, you make a convincing point. Now, it's, of course, not only about economics. Uh, for many Europeans, it is a threat to their culture, their identity, uh, their values, their security, and all of that. Uh, and you see this, of course, because uh, the countries which are most violently opposed to migration are countries which have very little migration. Absolutely. Eastern Europeans. Absolutely. That's true. It's true. But I this mean, being said, the fears are there, and not only in Eastern Europe, they are in France and everywhere. So what's your answer to that? What can we do about that? Well, I mean, I, th I, th I think it's, it's, it's a really serious problem because the migration issue has in some ways delivered us as Europe as a whole, into the hands of the populists. Um, and it's the fear of the other and so on that we know about. And the awful thing, of course, is that if you have a vicious circle that we need migrants. The more migrants there are, then the more resentment there is. And therefore, the more we clamp down and make it difficult so it doesn't we haven't, it has prevented us from developing a more sort of holistic approach. Um, but what you do about these emotions, I don't know. I mean, the two statistics that have always stuck in my mind is uh, when I asked uh, Interpol, um, how big a problem is uh, Islamic terrorism? Um, guy who used to be run by a Brit for a long time. And this guy, Rob, said... Rob Wainwright. Rob yeah. Wainwright. And Rob said, um, I think probably 0.01% would be an exaggeration. You can't blame the terrorism, uh, any of the sort of outbreaks of recent years, uh, on the migrants. And when I then turned this round, and um, I asked Gilles de Kerkhove, who hand, handles European anti-terrorism, Gilles said, that's quite right. Um, they're not migrants. They're second or third generation people who basically we have not treated well. So we have created 
fertile conditions for resentment that has then been, to some extent, captured by the Islamic populists. Yes. The yes, but isn't that, I mean, isn't that a bit of a unilateral way of looking at things? It's all our fault, nothing to do with the migration. I think that uh, uh, the argument to say that it's not fresh migrants who are the terrorists is correct, I think. But at the same time saying that if it's migrants of the second and third generation, it's nothing to do with immigration. It's going a step too far. It has to do with integration, which has gone bad. Now, then we can decide it has gone bad. Why? Because we didn't treat them well, because they didn't want to be integrated, because, yeah, you see what I mean? So it's, it's not as straightforward as it looks. Well, like. I'd, I'd only venture two counter-arguments to this. The first is that terrorism as a whole in Europe has gone into sharp decline in the last 30 years. Much, much less terrorism than in the 70s and the 60s. Much less. And secondly, uh, what can one do about people's ill-informed prejudices? The Pew uh, researchers um, ask people, um, whether they thought that migrants were responsible for terrorist outbreaks, 60% of respondents said, absolutely, no question about it. It's all down to migrants fresh out of the rubber dinghies. Ridiculous. No, no, I take that point. But at the same time, I think we have to face the fact that, and it brings me to the next question, it is again about integration. It's all fine what you say if it works. The problem is that whether we have an assimilation approach or a more communautaire approach, the Brits versus the French, let's put it this way, uh, uh, neither of them has really worked that well, has it? And we have a problem with second and third generation immigration. And the people, now, uh, you are quite convincing in a way, but if you say this, uh, to people who have had problems with terrorism or things like that, uh, they don't buy the they don't buy the argument that uh, uh, we should now take in more migrants, despite of the fact that the last twenty or thirty years ago the migrants we took ended badly in some cases. I mean, I admit it's a small case. You see, we have to we have to get a good have a good argument about this. Okay, well, right at the beginning of our conversation, I said I'm not a crusader. And I'm not. I'm, I'm really a journalist of background. And I worked for the FT for a long time. And we're always accused of being too much on the one hand, but then on the other. So I decided to look into it as a reporter. And I took two towns, roughly 20 kilometers apart. One is Vilvoda, yes. and the other is Mechelen. Mechelen, with Bart Sommers. Bart Sommers, mm -hmm. who in 2015, I think it was, was voted um, yes, the ma world mayor, mayor yes. of the year or something. And I went to see Bart and I said, why is it that you seem to have got it under control here and Vilvoda has got a big problem? Because at the time, Vilvoda was sending, or sending, no, Vilvoda wasn't sending, but about a hundred young um, uh, Maghrebin were leaving Vilvoda to fight for Daesh right. every year. Yes. None from Mechelen. 
So I, I went to see Barton. I said, what's the secret? And he said, well, he said, I didn't know any more about integration of immigrants when I arrived as mayor than, than anybody else. But the first thing I did was I called in the police chiefs. And I said, okay, no more harassment. You, you stop right now. You don't pick up young men on the street merely because they're of a different color. And then secondly, he said, I instituted street parties so that everybody could meet each other. Yes, yes. That so was before COVID, of course. That was, yes, I'm afraid it, this was back, yes, in the good days. Um, the next thing he did was he went around looking at um, unused buildings. Uh -huh. And they bought them up, and they turned, they made them into housing, and they, they did a lot to make a dent in the housing problem pretty quickly. And the last thing he did, he said, I made no apology for this. I decided on busing. We bussed the kids so that we never had more than five, eight yes. percent of new migrants in a class. And he said, frankly, it worked. And it didn't take long to work. He, he said, luckily, I mean, as the former minister president of Flanders, he knew how to pull budgetary levers and fund this. But it was a very good example in my mind of at least how you stop digging a deeper hole, how you actually integrate people of a different culture, different language, and above, above all, different religion. That is tricky. There's no question about it. But we can't stay where we are. No, even I would agree with you on this, that even regardless of whether we're taking new migrants or not, we need policies of this type to deal with the people who are there, because Absolutely. there are quite a few. So uh, I think that is an interesting argument. I, do you have the impression that this has impressed people and they are imitating what Bart Thomas has done? Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't. Um, I, th I think that uh, every time there is a terrorist event, and I, I think the Bataclan uh, outrage did enormous damage, and I think it, it prevented um, the Brussels authorities from really tackling the Molenbeek problem, because people just turned around and said, there you are. It's a hive of, uh, you know. Um, so it's terribly difficult. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge it requires enormous political courage, and that's something that we know is not in ready supply. Uh, we're getting to the end of, of the talk, but uh, before we end, I, I really I want to ask you about something you say. There is a need for a comprehensive migration policy. I think it's very true. It's incidentally a bit what the European Council tried to do after 2015. Yeah. Could you sort of elaborate a bit on this? Uh, what are the key ingredients of such a comprehensive migration policy? Well, I mean, as we know, the, the current commission has produced what it calls a new pact on migration and asylum. Um, they've, they've held off um, finalizing it waiting for first the German election and then next year's French presidentials. Um, but it's already clear that it's hopeless. It's a hopeless plan. 
because basically what they're going to do is to fiddle with the, the, the Dublin regulation, which is at the root of a lot of problems where uh, now 30 years old, you, a country where, which first received uh, an immigrant is responsible for, uh, for them. That's, they have to be sent back there. Um, and that the commission has constantly argued against. Um, but the member states have constantly resisted. So it'll be fiddled with in, in the margins. The second thing I think is far worse. Uh, and that is that the commission, to my mind, has thrown in the towel, surrendered. It has said, we're going to have an EU-wide policy in which every member state does its own thing. So it's got a portmanteau title. That's yeah. an EU migration policy. And in it, there are national migration policies. Now, I understand the, the, the limitations on the Commission, and that's why I have, uh, I hope, offended a lot of people by suggesting that we take migration away from the European Commission that has so many other responsibilities which are borne in on it and is struggling to address quite a lot of them. Uh, and instead, we, 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 the Commission says, back me or sack me. Either give me the powers to create a genuine EU policy. And if you don't, let's set up a new, more powerful, muscular migration agent. Now, we don't have the time to go into this. It's quite a provocative uh, idea. And whether it's the Commission or the agency, I think you go quite far in saying, basically, we should have a common migration policy like we have a common agricultural policy or trade policy. But that's probably a step too far for many member countries. Uh, uh, I, I think it's an interesting prospect, but I don't see this happening. If I can just finish by saying one thing. We need a common policy on the money side. Right now, we're roughly, well, for a long time, we've had four people in the workforce paying taxes for every pensioner. Within 25 years' time, there will be only two people paying taxes and for one pensioner. And at the moment, the pensions are already underwater. I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but life in Europe is going to be getting worse unless we address our manpower problem. Thanks a lot, Giles. Uh, since I'm one of the retired, I'm of course worried about my future pension, so I'm sympathetic to your views. But thank you very much for uh, a very stimulating talk. Um, I think not everybody will agree with you spontaneously. That's not the point. The point is to have a contribution to a dispassionate debate Absolutely. about some of the key issues which we address. And I think in that sense, the book you've written is a really useful contribution to the overall debate. Thank you. That's really my aim. Let's talk about it. Thank you. That's a nice conclusion. Thank you very much for viewing today's uh, Europe chat. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made you think about some of the most difficult issues we are facing right now. We will have a similar talk with uh, someone else in November to talk about the handling of the COVID crisis. It will be the Canadian ambassador 
to the European Union Eilish campus. I look forward to that and goodbye. podcast is co-funded by the Europe for Citizens programme of the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.